Who has political sovereignty? Who has political sovereignty? This was a question that was on the minds of many um, in England and in Scotland during the mid-1600s, during the time of the English Civil War. Could Parliament override the commands of the king? Or was the king, in fact, the sovereign ruler of the nation and commander of the army? Additionally, since Henry VIII had declared himself to be the supreme head of the Church of England a century or so earlier, was any notion of uh, religious freedom an actual possibility? Or were Christians simply commanded, as Titus 3.1 says, to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient? See, up until this time, the mid-1600s in particular, kings ruled under the philosophy known as the divine right of kings. It was widely believed, especially by the kings, that the monarch was preordained by God to inherit the crown before their birth. As a result, they believed that the monarchy was not accountable to any earthly authority, such as a, a parliament, because their right to rule came directly from God's authority. This meant that the king, or in some cases the queen, was not subject to the will of the people, was not subject to other branches of government or any other rule of law. They believe that the king is the law. Whatever, therefore, he does is legal. Well, this was summarized by the Latin phrase, rex lex. That means the king is law. But then along comes the Reformation. And the Reformation has a stress. Reformation preachers had a stress on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And as those biblical teachings and ideas spread and blinded eyes began to be opened, people continued to come to the understanding that only God is sovereign and certainly not wicked kings. They came to the conclusion that kings, particularly wicked kings, had no authority over the church and that the Bible actually limited their authority in all realms. And so by the time of the English Civil War in the mid-1600s, a Scottish pastor named Samuel Rutherford, who was one of, the, one of the representatives sent to England by Scotland, by the Church of Scotland, to help draft the Westminster Confession of Faith, Rutherford wrote an important book titled Lex Rex, which means the law is king. Okay? This book would go on to, be, to become one of the important works that influenced the foundational documents and political philosophies of the United States, of our nation. And in Lex Rex, Rutherford asks, and he answers from Scripture, some fundamental questions regarding civil government. So, for example, what is the purpose of the government according to the Bible? His answer was, the purpose of the government according to the Bible is the glory of God and the well-being of the people in both outward and spiritual terms. Or, or this question, who or what brings government into being? 
He answered this from the scriptures by saying, it is brought into being by God and the people by a means of a, a contract or covenant. What is the nature of government? A government involves declaring, applying, and enforcing the law. What are the limits on government? Government cannot go beyond God's law and command what is contrary to it or abuse the people. And so in this work, Rutherford draws the answers out of the Bible, and his ultimate conclusion is that civil government is from God for his glory and limited by his law, and that the power is given through the people for whose well-being it is to be exercised. A good example of this is the preamble to the United States Constitution, which begins with, we the people. In order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. Abraham Lincoln concluded similarly his Gettysburg Address with this sentence that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that the government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. All of these ideas are derived from Rutherford's work, which is derived from the Bible. And those documents are important, but we understand that their importance is not ultimate. God's word is the highest authority. And as citizens of the kingdom of God, we are always to be obedient to our highest authority. So with all of this in mind this morning, we're going to start in Titus chapter 3, verse 1, picking it up where we left off last week. I mentioned that we were going to come back and go into this in a little bit more detail. We're going to move around a little bit, and so I kind of, I don't really apologize. I'm just making you aware of that now. We're going to move around a little bit. I'm not sorry. And we're going to spend some time referring to Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, which is really a more detailed teaching on the same topic. So let me read both of these passages. Titus 3, 1, we're going to flip over to Romans 13, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Titus 3, 1, Paul says to Titus, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Romans 13, verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now, I just want to stop and pray one more time. Father, I pray that you would give us um, ears to hear and eyes to see this morning. 
that we would understand the things that you are telling us from your word. Help us to be obedient to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we consider this topic in these verses, one of the important considerations that we must take into account is the context of the writing, particularly in, in Titus. So for Titus on the, on the island of Crete, we need to understand what Paul is saying, especially we need to understand the sort of the stereotypical Cretan uh, citizen. So remember, Paul wrote in the first chapter, in verses 12 and 13, he says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then Paul adds, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Now, this is a stereotype, but all stereotypes have roots in the truth. And so this is generally true of the people living on the island of Crete the people whom Titus was ministering to. So you can understand then that by the time we get to chapter 3, verse 1, Paul is telling Titus that the people need to do their duty as good citizens. Be good citizens is what Paul is saying there. It's pretty simple. Essentially, the same thing is true to the letter to the Romans. Paul, again, is the same author. But I would argue that Romans 13 is more of a subtle rebuke of the government, of a wicked and evil government, than it is of the church. Because the emperor, especially Nero, who was most most likely ruling when these words were written, Nero did not view himself as a minister of God who would approve of the good deeds of the Christians. In fact, the the common Roman greeting of the time was the statement, Caesar is Lord, to which Christians would respond in a sort of a subversive way, an undermining way, Jesus is Lord. See, while instructing the church on how we are to live, what these passages are, are, are also doing is explaining that any authority given by God to a civil magistrate is necessarily limited and conditional. It's limited. We actually know this. I'll illustrate. We know that no one has unlimited authority over any other person. So, for example, Ephesians chapter 6 Verses 1 and 2 says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. Now this is the least limited, but children are not to obey in cases where parents are pressuring or commanding their children to sin. We see this all the time, right? Or where children are being abused, See, we understand that there are limits, and we also know that we have the responsibility at times to step in and and to protect children who are being hurt. We understand this. The same is true for the magistrate, for the civil authorities. Their authority is not unlimited, and we know this. And so this morning, I want to paint for you a picture of the biblical reasons, hear me very carefully here, I want to paint for you a picture this morning of the biblical reasons uh, for disobeying the lesser authorities out of obedience to our highest authority. Okay? It's kind of dangerous. So 
pay very close attention. And what I have in mind is the encroachment of the government on spheres of life that the government has no business being in. But I hope you know that I do this with fear and trembling. In fact, you've never heard a political sermon by me before because I've never given one. But here we are in our study of Titus, in Titus chapter 3, verse 1. And so I do this with fear and trembling, and not because I'm one of those radical preachers who hates the government and income taxes and rails against the government and every chance I get. Rather, I take these verses very seriously. And they mean what they say, but we need to understand what they say. So let me give you a starting point, a presupposition. Our starting point is this. Only God has absolute authority. Only God has absolute authority. In chapter 2, paragraph 1 of the, the London Baptist Confession, describes God like this. It says, He is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. And then back in the first chapter of the confession, we read this, Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare his will unto his church. So, God is our highest authority, and he has revealed his will in his word. This boils down to the doctrine of sola scriptura. We see this right in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. All authority has been instituted by the highest authority. So with this is our starting point. I'm going to point out what Christians have long understood, that there are three biblical spheres of authority that have been specifically instituted by God. Family, church, and state. Okay? Family, church, and state. Now, because there are probably some kids in the middle school age group who uh, think that I just told them that it's okay to disobey their parents, we're going to begin with the family. The family is the most basic and foundational component of society and the most basic sphere of authority, right? And the family was established by God at creation. Let me remind you of Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. It says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So right there in those verses, in Genesis chapter 1, we can see that God gave the family, husband and wife, man and woman, he gave them the responsibility to procreate, to provide for life's necessities. In fact, the very next verse, verse 29, says, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. So we can see some basic responsibilities in Genesis chapter 1 of the family. 
In the New Testament, Paul emphasizes the same thing. He just does so in kind of a corrective way. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says this, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. But the family's sphere of authority goes beyond just simply providing food, clothing, shelter, and work. It includes things like education. Think of Abraham. God said of Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 19, God says this, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and judgment justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Or consider Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall walk of them when you sit, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The family's sphere of authority was established by God for our good, for the good of the family, for the good of mankind, and for his glory. And so the family is the basic unit of society. The family is crucial for the the nurture of honor, beginning with honoring your parents, uh, discipline, and also love. We can see these things throughout the scripture. God established the family to care and provide for our bodies and our souls from birth to death. So what happens when the governing authorities encroach on the sphere of the family? Listen to this quote. This is by a pastor. I think he was from South Africa. I can't remember his name, but it's a good quote. Listen to this. Governments now get voted into power by promising to oversee housing, education, medicine, the economy, a good currency, a minimum income, food, water, land, and the list goes on. The government becomes a parent, and the citizens are dependents. The government in this role becomes a monstrous juggernaut of bureaucracy, devouring taxes, and trying to regulate every detail of life. Now keep in mind... I'm not trying to radicalize you, okay? I'm not trying to radicalize you or to work you up about the government. I'm not calling for another American revolution. In fact, Paul gives a specific command as to how we are to respond to this. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says this, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all the people, for kings, and all in high, who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And since the context of those verses in 1 Timothy is that those prayers are to be prayed in the church, That brings us really to the second sphere of authority, and that is the church. Jesus himself, in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 and 19, he he says this, responding to Peter's confession 
that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now the keys of the kingdom there are, are, are keys of authority, and the church is foundational for the family of God. In fact, the church cultivates those same characteristics as the family does. Honor, discipline, and love, yet on a spiritual level. So, for example, we're not going to turn there, but think of the mutual dependence of the one another's in the body as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. When he says things like, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. Obviously, Paul is is talking about the body of Christ and the mutual dependence, yet differing roles, that various members of the body possess. Or think of the the authority and the roles that he has outlined so far in our our study of Titus, especially in chapters 1 and 2. You can see authority and roles there and how we are to um, encourage and teach one another. Or even consider a passage like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15 says this, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So consider this. God's design for the church ministry is one of word and sacrament, right? It's one of word and sacrament. It is one of discipleship and teaching. It's one of care and shepherding. It's one of rejoicing and weeping. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It's one of encouragement and serving, of assembly and worship. And this is an actual sphere of authority. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. He says this right after telling the elders to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Or Hebrews 13, verse 17, the preacher of Hebrews says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Church elders are legitimate authorities over the spiritual health of the people of God. Theologian who lived in the 1900s, John Murray, he wrote this. He said, The sphere of the church is distinct from that of the civil magistrate. What needs to be appreciated now is that its sphere is coordinate with that of the state. The church is not subordinate to the state, nor is the state subordinate to the church, but both are subordinate to God and to Christ in his mediatorial dominion as head over all things to his body, the church. Both church and state are under obligation to recognize this subordination and the corresponding coordination of their respective spheres of operation in the divine institution. Some of those words I really like saying. But did you catch all of that? 
The church does not operate with permission from the state. We do not assemble on Sunday mornings to worship God because the state says that we can. Likewise, the state does not operate with permission from the church. We are both under God's authority and have been given mandates by God of certain things to do. Now what happens then when the state intrudes on the church's sphere of authority? In fact, we could ask that same question about the family. What happens when the church intrudes on the family's sphere of authority? Some of you have seen that and experienced that. But let's stick with the state for a moment. Think of Uzziah, the passage from 2 Chronicles that I read a moment ago. Um, 2 Chronicles 26. He faced severe consequences when the king stepped in and did the work of the priest. He immediately faced leprosy. And he lived with that for the rest of his life, effectively losing his kingdom to his son who had to rule in his place. Do we still believe that God sometimes uses physical ailments to punish like that? Let me remind you of part of Paul's instructions about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 and 30 says this, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Excuse me. Sometimes, however, the punishment is more subtle. Usually, you're not going to be watching TV and see a politician break out in leprosy when he oversteps his bounds. That's probably not going to happen. Usually, the punishment, the way that God works, is much more subtle. Listen to what happened in King, to King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 9 to 14. Let me remind you of this. So Saul said, this is King Saul of Israel, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come on the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul's family line had the monarchy removed from them because he did the work of the priest. This should serve as a a warning to us. Governing authorities should take these things seriously. Ought the church, ought the church bow to the totalitarian tendencies of the state, no matter what nation that is? Should we not say, what have you done? When they attempt to act as our mediator between God and man, or when they attempt to regulate that mediation, you can just live stream, it'll be okay while at the same time removing content from those platforms that they would deem harmful? Surely they will say, as King Saul said, I forced myself. 
or to quote a certain governor, I know this will be hard and is a sacrifice. Any pastor who brings people together in close proximity, a large group of people, is making a huge mistake. They're endangering themselves, their family, and total strangers. It is not a Christian thing to do. Now you will notice at this point, I'm still talking about the authoritative sphere of the church. And my point here is simply this. It is the church's responsibility to determine what the Christian thing to do is. It's not the state's responsibility to determine that. It's not the state's responsibility to to determine if the church or we as Christians are living up to the standard of loving your neighbor as yourself, right? God's word speaks clearly about these things, and the church has been given the authority to proclaim the word. Now, some will argue, you've probably heard this argument, what about building codes? We submit to building codes, those types of laws. There are laws that are right and just and have been put into place to protect citizens. So if we were to hire an electrician to do some work here, we would want the work to be done right so that the place doesn't burn down or uh, so that the roof doesn't collapse under a heavy snow load. Right? We want it designed right. And so we gladly submit to those kinds of laws. At the beginning of the pandemic, just about a year ago, this is what we thought was happening. The government was issuing mandates because they believed that this virus was dangerous. And it was in many areas around the world and around our country. It was in many areas and to some people. But by early summer, it was growing clearer and clearer that something else was happening. And I'm convinced that Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 is true. That our battle, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, since we've already gotten into this a little bit, let's now transition to the God-given sphere of the authority of the state. God-given sphere of the authority of the state. In the early chapters of Genesis, we see first the establishment of the family. Then we see a distinction between those who are God's people and those who are not God's people. Or to use the language of the New Testament, the church and the world, right? And then in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, we see God establish what we should call the root of government as he establishes the death penalty. Genesis chapter 9, 6, in which God says to Noah this. He says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Then it should be of no surprise that the very next chapter, chapter 10, it records the spread of nations. So that the final verse of Genesis chapter 10 says this, These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. The root of government is established in Genesis 9-6. We maybe could take it back a little further than that, but we can at least see it there. When God establishes the rule of law, And then we see nations develop. This tells us that from the very beginning, the main function of the state 
is to punish evil. This is at the very core of Romans 13, 1 through 7, right? That we just read. So the sphere of the authority of the state is found, we could put it this way, it's found in the well-ordered protection of society. The well-ordered protection of the society. The sword that the state bears is specifically for the punishment of evildoing, as Romans 13 verse 4 says. So the focus of the state is not on the care of souls, but rather on protection of bodies, especially the human rights of its citizens including the right to worship the Lord. So here's how this works. The government, as God's servant for your good, the government may and should warn its citizens, including churches, of possible threats. Think of active shooters or tornadoes or invading armies or, yes, even disease outbreaks. The government can and should warn of these imminent threats. And they may appeal to churches to cease assembling temporarily for the safety and protection of the members. But the state may not bring its sword into the church to mandate how we are to worship or when we are to worship. In other words, those governors and authorities who have prohibited churches from assembling or have mandated masks in worship, or have prohibited singing or the Lord's Supper, they have stepped outside of their God-ordained bounds of their authority. My argument, and what we've been meeting regularly for months now, and we've seen very little um, danger, my argument is that the current COVID lockdowns are depriving Christians of word and sacrament. They're depriving Christians of assembled worship. And I I should add right here, I'm grateful that in our state, our governor has not, specifically not prohibited us from assembling. He has said that it is unwise, but he has not prohibited us. We will not be prosecuted for assembling together. Whereas in other states in our nation, they have been prohibited. So I'm grateful for that. But it has become clear that, I'm just using the state as in a general term, that the state has overstepped its realm of authority and deprived God's people of, for example, listen to Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25, which says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to Stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Additionally, God never intended for our faces to be covered. Now this falls under the same category. If there is a real and present danger, then we ought to submit to the state in this area. But time and evidence continues to point to the fact that masks, especially the way that most people wear them, like around your chin, they're ineffective. I will admit to you, I will be the first to admit to you, 
I am not an expert in this area. I'm not an epidemiologist or the son of an epidemiologist. I can't even say it. I'm not an expert in this issue. So please don't take me to task as to whether or not masks are effective. I'm speaking specifically about government mandates and not about individual conscience. That actually falls under the authority of the, uh, the realm, the sphere of the family. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about government telling us. But I will point you to the fact that both Paul and John, both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle John, mention repeatedly in their letters that they desire to be with the saints face to face. This is not a mere figure of speech because it's actually part of the promise of the eternal kingdom of God. Listen to Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on, his, on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord their God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Or as Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Mask mandates, since the mandates, since the evidence points loudly to their ineffectiveness, is the state working against the God-given desire for face-to-face Christian fellowship. Now hear me very carefully here. I'm not trying to guilt or shame anyone who is convinced that they should wear a mask. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that at all. I don't have the authority to tell you whether or not to wear a mask any more than I have the authority to demand that you do wear a mask when you come here. I don't have that kind of authority over your face. My point in all of this is this. As Christians, we obey our leaders We obey our rulers, not for their sake, not even for our own sake, but for Christ's sake. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, when he writes this, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Yet outside of their own sphere, rulers have no authority. And so the state cannot command pastors not to preach or churches not to assemble. They can and should warn of real imminent danger, but it must be real imminent danger and not a mere inconvenience. As I said early on, a year ago, we had to assume that that the pandemic was a real threat And so we had to make the best decisions that we could with the evidence that we were given. And the same is true for all of those spheres, right? As as families, you had to make the best decisions that you could with the evidence that you were given. Families had to decide what they needed to do in order to protect themselves. And there there were some real reasons why some chose not to assemble. 
real and good reasons. I'm not trying to shame, I, I want you to know this, I'm not trying to shame or guilt anyone for exercising their own family authority, okay? I'm talking about God-established limits to the authority of the state. I hope that you understand that. And then as time passed throughout this last year and we examined the evidence, and as I said, I think by this past summer it became clear and has only become more and more clear as time has gone on, we have determined that the danger was not so much to our bodies but to our souls. So, three quick gospel notes and then we'll be done. Number one, in matters of disagreement, submission to God's ordained authorities in each of the spheres should be standard practice for Christians, but only so far as their authority extends. That's what submission is. Submission is only submission if there's disagreement, right? Otherwise, it's just doing what you do. So in matters of disagreement, submission to God's ordained authorities in each of those spheres should be standard practice for Christians, but only so far as their authority extends. Number two, in matters of civil obedience or disobedience, Christians are to be seen as model citizens, rendering honor as appropriate. So honor your father and mother. Respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Honor the emperor. And remember, this is number three, Romans chapter 12, verses 14 to 18. So right before that passage in Romans 13, it says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So bring this now back to Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This should define and describe us as the people of God. Pray with me. Father, we are grateful that you have, in your sovereignty, in your goodness, out of your great love for us, you've established these spheres to care for us. Lord, you could have left us alone to do whatever we would do. And because we are sinners, we would completely devour one another. We would devour people who are weaker than us, whether that was other nations or other families, individuals, Lord, we would destroy because of our sin but you have given us realms of authority. So I am thankful, Lord, for the families of this church. I'm thankful for families who love and obey you, who search the scriptures to see if these things are so, who train their children in the way that they should go. Father, I am grateful. I'm grateful that you have assembled the church together, that you have brought us together. Lord, this church is a joy um, to shepherd. 
And so I pray, Lord, that you would continue to unite us tighter and tighter together with you as our head as we follow your direction and leading. And Lord, I am grateful that you have put us in a nation that has um, written down freedoms that we might assemble and put a sign out front saying who we are, that we might freely carry our Bibles and witness on the streets. Lord, we, we are grateful that you have put us in this place And I pray that we would not take those things for granted, but would be faithful to obey, would be faithful to go and make disciples of all nations, that we would baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and that we would teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded, remembering that he is with us always. And so, Father, we pray as we approach the table this morning, as we come, we don't presume to come on our own righteousness clearly, but because of your mercy because of your grace. And so, Lord, we come today to proclaim Christ's death and to wait eagerly for his return. Lord, we long to see him face to face, to be with our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We long to be able to see our Father. Lord, I pray that you would continue to build up this church, that we might be obedient to you, We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.